0: Okay. Well, as is my custom, I uh, always make a handout for you so you have something to take home. And basically what I wind up doing here is reading my handout to you. But I hope to embellish a few things. And what I've written here, many of you are very familiar with the, the history of how the Bible all came together. But uh, I hope to have a few little pieces here and there that you may not have related to being part of how God brought this wonderful gift to us. Um, Because the plan is as all-encompassing as the universe. And the plan goes all the way back to the very beginning. And that's where we're going to start, is in the very beginning. And uh, I'm not taking credit for being the author of every word of this handout. What I do, and I've always done this, is research what other scholars have put together and try to find the most important parts, the most relevant parts in my mind, that will benefit you. And so, although there is, you know, quite a bit that are my own words, much of this is from real, genuine, honest-to-goodness Bible scholars. And typically, I, I not being a scholar, I don't speak it with scholarly words. So the scholarly parts will probably jump out at you. Because <laughs> I've Speak street English, not scholar English. So uh, let's begin, and uh, if you have questions anytime, you know, just ooh, 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 and I'll be glad to help you out. It is said that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and that the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And we can also say that the Old Testament records the witness of those who saw the day of his flesh coming, okay. before it dawned. And the New Testament records the witness of those who saw and heard him in the days of his flesh. Both testaments have within their pages a rich history and testimony of God's gracious, loving kindness towards his people, created in his image. And what this study is about, then, is just how this rich testimony came into existence. There's so much written about the Bible that we could easily spend a college semester of Sundays exploring its historical background. But what we are going to do is to highlight some of the more interesting and relevant parts of its history over three Sunday evenings. And you probably know much of the Bible's history already, it's my hope that you will find at least some new information revealed here. Before there were satellites, which is how I made my living, why I put it in there. <laughs> Before there were planes, trains, and automobiles. Before we rode horses from city to city. Before there were even cities. But after the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, We were hunters and gatherers and herdsmen. We were nomads who traveled the land continually searching for new pastures to feed our flocks and herds. Um, Before mankind invented written forms of language, we passed down our history from generation to generation verbally through the telling of heroic stories, romantic stories, genealogies, um, battles, um, you know, conquests. These kinds of things were all shared around the campfire where men could brag about their manliness. And, you know, they'd talk about this uh, great beast that they brought down with bow and arrow or whatever. These were things that they just sat around and they told these stories to their kids. And uh, they put them to uh, poems and songs And uh, the poems and songs made it easier to memorize and to pass along to their children and their grandchildren. And so each generation would recount these things and add to the story that their father told and their grandfather told. They would add their own adventures. And so we get this collection of uh, stories that go back beyond the written word. Um, so, uh, along comes Moses, and the children of Israel were, of course, enslaved in Egypt, and when God freed the children of Israel in Exodus and brought them out, Moses spent time, 40 years, in fact, in the wilderness with the 12 tribes, and had time then to interview the patriarchs of tribes and the families the elders and to gather information and that was all done under the guidance of the holy spirit and all of this this particular paragraph the what i plan to do during this three sunday night study is to connect historical dots from the beginning to the next to the next. And so we're going to come back to this paragraph next week and see uh, how this connects to the, the written word. This is a transitional period for Israel as Moses writes the Pentateuch. So careful study of archaeological evidence has shown that writing developed around 3150 B.C., more than 1,000 years before Abraham and 1,500 years before Moses. The invention of writing could be called the dividing point between prehistory and history. That is to say that we can only know prehistory from physical remains such as monuments Tools and weapons and human remains, etc. Without written texts, we would be limited to guesswork in determining our past history. Cave art preceded the written word, and it was sort of like man's way of saying, Kilroy was here. <laughs> uh, what these primitive peoples would do is create a paste from colored rock and add water to it. And then they'd, from a mortar and pestle or something like that, they would hold a mouthful of it and put their hand on the wall of their cave and, and spray this colored pigment over their hand. And then when they took their hand off the wall, they left a sign for us to discover thousands of years later, that said Kilroy was here. And, uh, of course, before uh, the written word, they made pictographs on caves. You know, you've seen the uh, bison being uh, attacked by a tribe, and it's all depicted on the wall of a cave, and they've got bows and arrows or spears that they're throwing at this bison to bring it down. So these are uh, uh, precedents to the written word. Uh, anybody having any questions? So as indicated above then, around 3- 3150 B.C., the Sumerians in Mesopotamia, developed a system of hundreds of simplified pictograms, pictures that represent specific things, as well as symbols for measures and numbers. As the Sumerian society became more and more sophisticated and complex, the need for such a system for keeping records of contracts and deeds and other legal transactions developed. This was where the first cities were coming together and when people interact with one another and uh, they make contracts to buy land or to arrange a marriage or something like that, they uh, needed a written form. And so it was the Sumerians who came up with this written uh, uh, language and uh, they were printed into clay tablets and they would have hundreds of these Uh, probably carved out of wood uh, uh, like a stick with an imprint on the end. Almost you could think about the old IBM typewriter or hand typewriter and they have the the, uh, letters of the alphabet on the end of a lead hammer that struck a ribbon and left a mark. Well, they used a similar thing to make imprints in clay tablets, uh, but they were pictographs. Um, and they, uh, So anyway, next to the invention of writing itself, the most important development was the invention of phonetic symbols, what we call the alphabet. With an alphabet, any word could now be expressed with somewhere between 20 and 30 symbols. The Phoenicians are credited with inventing alphabetic writing sometime before 1500 B.C. They lived in what we now call the Holy Land, north of Canaan. All later alphabets were either derived from the Phoenician alphabet or created under the influence of the ones that were derived from the Phoenician alphabet, including our own. By the time of Moses, the Hebrew nation had developed a system of writing that has remained consistent to this day with a few variations over time. The early alphabets, Phoenician, Hebrew, and others, did not have symbols for vowel sounds, only for consonant sounds. In fact, the Hebrew Bible did not include vowel sounds until the period between A.D. 500 and 1,000, just 1,000 years ago. Before that, their alphabet did not contain vowel sounds. Uh, Let's see. And the reason for adding vowel sounds uh, by these scholars, Jewish scholars known as the Masoretes, was to preserve this ancient Hebrew language to understand how to pronounce a word properly, like the word properly. You know, without the vowels, it would be tubal, you know. So you add the, the vowel sounds, and then you can understand the word properly and how to pronounce it. yeah exactly a e i o and u they had the in the in the book and the and all of that down pat so their written bible the old testament originally did not have the a e i o and u in it and um we will see on the third night of study it, i've got uh you know typical text like this but it's got seven addendum sheets two of them are uh, an Old Testament uh, verse in uh, uh, out of a translation uh, the King James Version translation and the New Living Translation an example of for the evolution of our language an example of the use of the word compass back in King James time. Anyway, the reason to bring this up is because the Masoretic text for this verse is included on these pages, and you will. And there's another sheet that shows uh, the primitive tetra- tetragrammaton, which is the four-letter word for God in the Hebrew Bible a word that Hebrews were not allowed to pronounce for either uh, superstitious reasons or a misinterpreted scripture. That's all been lost in history. But the proper pronunciation of what we call Jehovah, Yahweh is the Y-H-W-H, that's called the tetragrammaton. The tetragrammaton does not have vowel Sounds in it and since they couldn't pronounce it for about a thousand years nobody passed on the proper pronunciation of the word to their descendants so we don't know if it's Yahweh or Yohi or Yeho you know we, we don't know which vowel was the first syllable and which vowel was the last syllable. We don't know the truth. So we have our own English word that we translate from the Tetragrammaton as Jehovah. But that was all because of the absence of the vowel sounds in the ancient Hebrew text. And the Masoretes added those sounds to preserve the language that they spoke so that subsequent generations would know how to properly speak Hebrew. But there's a downside to alphabetic systems. Any written text can only be understood by those who speak the specific language. If you pick up a Spanish book, it uses the same alphabet we do, but unless you know Spanish You know, it's all foreign. (laughs) Not Greek. It's not Greek to me. It's Spanish to me. (laughs) So, uh, anyway, let's see, where are we? Any written text can only be understood by those who speak the specific language. The use of symbols for words or ideas makes it possible for a language such as Chinese to be read and understood by people who speak different dialects and cannot understand one another when they speak. They can still read the written word and figure it all out. So the Rosetta Stone is a piece of black granite that exists today. We have it in a museum somewhere, probably in England would be my guess, uh, that contained the same information written in three different languages. Greek, which is very commonly known since uh, a couple thousand years ago because that's what uh, the Jews were speaking in Israel at the time. Uh, And most of the world was because of... uh, I'm drawing a blank. Beg your pardon? Yes, thank you. Alexander the Great. Conqueror, the great conqueror who... Uh, conquered all of the area surrounding the Mediterranean and through the Arabic peninsula and east. Possibly, I can't remember for sure, but possibly even to uh, uh, India. But I'm not sure about that one. Is, is, is that proper, correct? I think, I think he went all the way to India. So Koine Greek became the, the common language of that era. And uh, so it is one-third of the writing on the Rosetta Stone. And in the 1850s, when this was discovered, uh, nobody understood Egyptian hieroglyphics or demotic, which is an Egyptian script. And uh, so the Rosetta Stone had the same information, written in all three languages. And this enabled archaeologists of the time in the 1850s to figure out Egyptian hieroglyphics and the language, the, the ancient Egyptian language. And that stone was made around 200 B.C. and has helped modern archaeology to learn the history and languages of many civilizations besides those. And we'll see how languages in regions can be different but similar here in a moment and how that Rosetta Stone education for us helped us to learn those uh, different languages. There are similarities between languages of different peoples whose ancestry may connect many generations in the past. A good modern example is what is known today as the Romance Languages. they are a group of modern languages that evolved from spoken Latin between the 6th and 9th centuries A.D., the most widely spoken rom- spoken Romance language is Spanish. There are 410 million people on the planet who speak Spanish as their first language, followed by Portuguese, 216 million, French, 75 million, Italian, 60 million, and Romanian, 25 million. If you studied, studied Latin in high school or college, You may be surprised at how many Spanish or French words you recognize. So I have a couple of questions here for you to think about and discuss here. Does anybody know the Hebrew word for peace? Shalom, that's correct. How about the Arabic word for peace? I know you'll recognize it when I say it, because I'm sure you've heard it. Salam. Have you ever heard Salam? It's been used in many movies, uh, you know, uh, where Arabs are prominent uh, characters in a play. Anyway, can you hear the similarity between Shalom and Salam? Can you figure out what the connection is between Shalom and Salaam, between the Arabs and the Jews? It's biblical, right? Uh, These are... uh, Both the Arabs and the Jews, by the way, are Semitic peoples. You've heard, oftentimes you hear... Incorrectly used um, the word anti-Semitic, which typically is used to describe someone who hates Jews, who wants to kill Jewish people. And their enemies nowadays are the Arabs. Guess what? Arabs are Semitic peoples. The word Semite comes from none other than Noah's oldest son, Shem. So they were Shemites, and over time, we, being American English, I suppose, I don't know, somewhere back in history, dropped the H and it became Semites instead of Shemites. The Akkadians... The Canaanites, the Phoenicians, the Hebrews, and the Arabs were all descendants of Shem. Um, the Arab nation descended from anybody? Ishmael, who was uh, Abraham's son through Hagar, who Because of Sarah's despising Hagar and Ishmael, Abraham sent them off into the wilderness. And there is a, I didn't note it, but in in, uh, Genesis, there is a prophecy made that uh, Ishmael's children, would be, Ishmael was going to be a donkey of a man. You know, he would get along with no one. And uh, it's proven to be true today. So that's the connection between uh, Salam and Shalom. It's they're, they're both Semitic peoples. So now we get to uh, Bible history. The Greek word biblia is translated into the English word books. And the word Bible is derived through Latin from the Greek biblia. But when we speak of the Bible, we are referring specifically to the group of 66 books that have been acknowledged as canonical by the Christian church. We have divided the Bible into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the word canon comes from the Greek word canon, but spelled with a K, which means rule or standard. And so canon is the word Christians have chosen to describe the list of books to be included in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Which ones to include and exclude was debated several times over the centuries by a number of ecumenical councils or groups of church leaders. The Eastern Orthodox Christian Church list of Old and New Testament books is different from that of the Roman Church, the Catholic Church, and both of those are slightly different from the canon of the contemporary Reformation Bible that we use. In the Old Testament, the first Christian's only scripture was the Old Testament. The new one hadn't been written and assembled yet. Um, We're talking about the first three centuries or so of Christianity. Um, They believed that uh, the Old Testament... Was inspired by God, and they used it as their guide for faith and action. That's Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. Would we like to read at him? It uh, doesn't matter. <laughs> All scripture is inspired by God. Three, sixteen, and seventeen. This was held as fact by everyone in the New Testament church, and their scripture was the Old Testament. Uh, The Old Testament was divided into three parts, the law, the prophets, and the writings. The order of the books in the Hebrew Bible differs from the order of the books in the Christian Old Testament, and they're listed here. I won't read them off to you the law is what we call the pentateuch and then the prophets and the writings are just assembled in a different order than we have them assembled in our bible in luke 24:44 jesus said to his disciples this is what i told you while i was still with you everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of moses the Prophets and the Psalms. However, in the New Testament, the Hebrew Bible is more commonly referred to as the Law and the Prophets or Moses and the Prophets. And I list a couple of scriptures where that is supported. Um, But is that all the Bible is? Is it just a collection of ancient writings? Who is the Bible about and what is its reason for being? Simply said, it is God's revelation of himself to us, but there is more to it than that. What we call general revelation is covered in uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. What Paul is talking about here is what's commonly referred to as general revelation The natural world in which we find ourselves is not God itself. Rather, it is what he made. Here's an example, uh, a parallel, if you will, uh, from a human standpoint. If we were to fly to the moon and go to the right place on the surface of the moon, even today, because there's no atmosphere on the moon, we would see footprints of a- astronauts that had walked on the surface of the moon decades ago. Those footprints are not men, but they're signs that man does indeed exist. In the same way, everything that God has created points to his existence. In the simplicity and complexity and beauty of the universe, all that he made, God shouts to us, here I am. The entire universe serves God's purpose in self-revelation, or general revelation. What an awesome God. The revelation of God through nature reveals his power, goodness, and righteousness but it does not reveal His saving grace. Uh, general revelation cannot bring people into a saving knowledge of and relationship with Him. Hence, part of God's plan in Ephesians 1.11, it's, it's revealed that it is a plan uh, for our salvation had to include special revelation. Let me see if I can find Ephesians one eleven real quick. Okay, this would be the, uh, New Living Translation says, "Furthermore, because of Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for He chose us from the beginning, and all things happen just as He decided long ago." Uh, see what? In uh, the NIV, it says, "In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined, according to the plan." of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And what a magnificent plan it is. Sorry, I'm an emotional kind of guy. (laughs) Does anybody have any questions? Well, let's see what special revelation is. God's general revelation has been given to all of mankind, even though it has mostly been perverted and rejected by man's sinful nature. Having known this truth since before the creation, God included as part of his plan a written communication to be made available to all of us, and which we call special revelation. In the second chapter of Genesis, we see that Adam... Understood God's verbal communications and appreciated what God had made. In the third chapter after the fall, this verbal communication between God and man was severed, and the created order was placed under a curse. That's in Genesis three, seventeen to nineteen. Any volunteers? Okay. Let's see what I can find here. And to Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit I told you not to eat, I have placed a curse on the ground. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. All your life you will sweat to produce food until your dying day. Then you will return to the ground from which you came, for you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. That was the curse that God put on Adam for his sin. Uh, Special revelation is not needed due to some defect in God's plan because it was part of his plan in the first place. By the way, the terms general revelation and special revelation do not appear in the Bible. It's a human means or a theologian's means of identifying the different aspects of God's revelation of himself to mankind. In this written communication, we learn about God's nature, his loving kindness for us, who are only, who are the only part of his creation that he made in his image. We also learn about how he revealed himself to us over time through many different events and people. This written communication we call scripture or the Bible. Scripture is the word of God written, which testifies to God's plan of salvation centered upon Jesus Christ, the Word of God incarnate. Jesus affirmed that Scripture was the Word of God and declared that the Scripture bore witness to his work. Thus, Jesus is also God's special revelation of himself to us. Anybody have any comments or questions or anything? So now we get to the writing part. The Sumerians in Mesopotamia developed the first system of writing around 3150 BC. Over time, several cultures developed their own systems of writing, pictograms, hieroglyphics, and eventually several kinds of phonetic symbols we call alphabets. It's not clear exactly when the 39 books of the Old Testament were established as canon as the Hebrew Bible, as it were, but scholars generally agree that it probably took place during the few centuries immediately before Christ. In Jesus' day, this book was referred to as the Scriptures and was taught regularly and read publicly in synagogues. It is generally accepted as historic fact that the Old Testament of Jesus' time was the Septuagint, a Greek Translation of the Hebrew canonical texts, excuse me, along with some apocryphal writings. The word apocrypha means hidden or obscure. According to tradition, seventy Jewish scholars, skillful linguists, were sent from Jerusalem to Egypt at the request of Ptolemy Philadelphus, and completed the translation in seventy days. It was called the Septuagint because of the 70 translators and the 70 days who were reputed to have uh, done the translation. The Septuagint was the Old Testament of the early Christian church. Not the Hebrew Bible. I, I should have put that in there. It was the Greek translation, the Septuagint, which was the Old Testament of the early Christian church. There are hints in the New Testament itself, which was written in Greek, that was the original language that the New Testament was written in, that while the apostles were still living and under their supervision, collections of the apostles' writings began to be made for the churches and placed with the Old Testament as the word of God. So let's see, I'm going to go to Colossians 4.16. This is Paul writing, After you have received this letter, pass it on to the church at Laodicea so they can read it and you should read the letter I wrote to them. That's to say, they're swapping letters or copies of the letters so that both churches will have copies of what Paul wrote. And then again in 1 uh, Thessalonians 5:27. I command you in the name of the Lord to read this letter to all the brothers and sisters. 2 Peter 3, 1 and 2. Do you? Go for it. And second Peter three, fifteen and sixteen. Okay. (coughs) there see Peter is telling them about the all of the writings of Paul that everyone has by the time Peter wrote this begun sharing among the churches. So besides the books that would ultimately be accepted as the New Testament canon, there were many other texts that ranged from good to silly to fraudulent. Some of those books were so fine that they were for a time regarded as scripture. Ultimately, the one criterion by which a book was judged for acceptance into the canon was whether it was of a genuine apostolic origin written by an apostle, such as John's gospel, or under the consultation or direction of an apostle, for example, Mark's gospel, which is based on the teaching and preaching of the apostle Peter. In spite of the fact that the early church suffered persecutions, first from the Jews and then from the Roman government, Christianity continued to grow, spreading throughout the Roman Empire. And by the time of Emperor Constantine, Christians numbered between 50 and 75 million believers. The Edict of Milan, issued by Constantine, favored Christianity and gave believers freedom of worship. Eventually, the church was subsidized by the state, and Sunday was made the official day of rest and worship. Between A.D. 325 and 787, the early church fathers participated in a series of seven church councils to define basic Christian doctrines and to deal with various controversies disturbing some of the churches. It was during the Council of Carthage in A.D. 397 that the canon of the New Testament was debated and finally settled upon. The result is the 27 books that we find in our New Testament today. There were eight different authors of the various New Testament books. All of these authors but Luke had a vital personal experience with Jesus himself. With the exception of Luke and Paul, All of them were with Jesus during his earthly ministry. Paul had a personal encounter with the risen Savior that brought him into service as the greatest missionary in church history. And Luke was a Gentile physician, an early convert to Christianity, who did scholarly research into the life of Christ and who followed Paul during his ministry and missionary journeys. In part two, we're going to look at the authorship and inspiration of the Bible. And uh, in part three, and when I say we're going to look at the authorship, we're going to examine some of the authors and how God uses personalities of these men who wrote the book. And it will be obvious and identifiable and interesting to discover. Uh, In part three, we will see how the Bible was so accurately preserved over thousands of years and discover how and why we have so many different English versions of the Bible. And at the end of part three, if we have time, we'll look at Jesus' final farewell in John's gospel for something that may surprise you. Yeah at at the time of Constantine talking about yes Const- Constantine the there in the United States is the only one the yeah yeah well the early church of course uh worshipped in synagogues with their brothers the the uh, the Hebrew church the old testament believers and, and they worshipped on the seventh day, which is Saturday, and um, they had Bible studies just like we have Bible studies and uh, throughout the week. And over time, uh, Easter Sunday became more important to the Christian church than the Sabbath, because the risen Savior, the recognition of our Savior's promise to us of eternal life because of his resurrection. It's what differentiated Christianity from ancient Hebrew worship of God. Same God, same message from God, Just now Christ has been revealed in the New Testament. He was promised in the Old Testament and we recognize that revelation of our Lord and Savior. The Hebrews are still waiting for their Messiah. In spite of, I'm going to celebrate (laughs) the last study that we did with the uh, uh, prophecy all of the ancient prophecies, Um, and I showed you that AND gate. With uh, We used 30 inputs in order to get an output from that AND gate. You had to have true on all 30 inputs. If you only had 29, the light didn't come on. 30 inputs resulted in 65 million, a billion possibilities, okay? If any one light was turned off, you didn't have the sign that said, this is the Messiah. Well, there were 300 prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament. And after our study that night, Bill asked me to do the calculation of how many Zeros would follow that number and it was 104 zeros, something like that. So you have 300 inputs to an end gate. In order to turn the light on to say this is the Messiah, it was more numbers than I can or anybody can give a name to because you've got your millions, billions, trillions, quadrillions. Now we're up to uh, three, six, nine, twelve zeros. And we got 104. Who's got a name for that many billion or umpteen possibilities? Yet we have a Messiah that turned on that light bulb. And the Hebrew faith hasn't recognized him yet. So that day is still to come. And we look forward to that day. Yes. (laughs) That's all I have if someone's got questions.